0: Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Finn Deponcier, and I am filling in for Christian today as he is away dealing with the family matter. And today I have with me environmental physicist and PhD candidate Jesse Vile vitao Jesse was uh, one of the first people to introduce me to the Liberty community here in Toronto um, through Students for Liberty back in, I guess, 2017, 2018. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's really been uh, a really important leader in that community in Toronto for a long time. So, good buddy of mine. Glad to have him on the program. Uh, how you doing, man?
1: Oh, doing pretty good. I, I just actually got back from Vancouver to visit my family for two weeks. And uh, so now I'm kind of settling back in. I got back, uh, today's what, Friday? So I got back uh, Wednesday night. Yeah. Uh, but aside from that, you know, things are going good as well as they can be during the times of Corona. So.
0: Mm-hmm. And I saw you were fighting on top of a mountain with your buddy <laughs> uh yeah i do i do have a good friend
1: who uh who does martial arts with me and every time i get to go into toronto as uh, into vancouver rather we'd like to throw on the gloves and spark as we started martial arts the same uh the same mm-hmm. day five years ago
0: yeah and uh of course me and you had a nice little <laughs> bout <laughs> in your backyard where <laughs> gave you a black eye you just skated my shoulder it's good fun um so anyway um i'm sure that whenever you do interviews people are almost um, they, they all, they always want to ask you about your, um, knowledge about the environment, right? Because you're an environmental physicist, but you're a remarkably educated guy, uh, across a number of domains. Um, so why don't you, uh, tell people about the fellowship that you're involved in? Uh, which
1: one? <laughs> oh, yeah. You have a
0: couple. I don't know the yeah. The one where you, the one, with, the one where you got that really nice headshot for.
1: Oh, Mercatus. Yeah, sure. Mercatus, um, Yeah. Yeah so uh, last year I was a, an Oscar Morgenstern fellow for the Mercatus Center which is kind of the uh um the economic department at uh, George Mason University. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also the most libertarian economic department in the US and probably anywhere in the world I would hazard a guess. Mm-hmm.
0: Um so an Austrian and, economic. Yeah.
1: So they they actually do both Austrian um public choice and uh virginian and i i think i think that's right virginian if i'm getting it right is the um the ostroms eleanor uh and vincent ostrom okay who kind of pioneered these ideas of uh how you can get management of public resources without uh a state uh mm-hmm. they, they eleanor ostrom got the nobel prize in economics uh for I can't remember what it was what exactly the the nobel prize was for but her work was like in managing waterways how different groups of people manage public resources but yeah Mm -hmm. so um so i got that fellowship uh largely because uh a friend of mine uh matt bufton who runs the institute for liberal studies i was at one of their events in ottawa and he said to everyone in the room you know mercatus is looking for fellows uh, why don't you guys apply? And I said, well, you know, I'm not exactly an economist. In fact, mm-hmm. I'm pretty far from an economist. I, I study uh, the movement of ice uh, and o- ice-ocean interactions. Mm-hmm. And he said, I know you're a libertarian. You should try applying. Yeah. So I, I I sent an application to their Oscar Morgenstern fellowship, which is their, their one for people who are more uh, quantitative. And I'm like, well, I do math for a living. So I'm pretty quantitative. Yeah. And uh, I guess I, I made a good pitch and I got it. And um, so what that entailed was going to, um, I want to say Arlington, but it's, it's somewhere in the DC area. I can't remember yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, for uh, these short little um, colloquia, you know, you go and talk about stuff, you meet with other people. Uh, it was nice. There's actually one other kind of environmental person there, which was interesting. She was more on the policy side of things, but it, it was cool. So yeah, I, uh, I did that. And then this year I'm a Don Lavoie fellow with Mercatus again, which is mm-hmm. their new online fellowship which has been launched due to Corona. So Mm -hmm. that's fine. Uh, you know, applying for, for libertarian economist fellowships is kind of my side gig.
0: (laughs) So are those the only two that you're involved with or are there more?
1: Uh, so, so those are the the two that I've been involved with, uh, in terms of, um, libertarianism Mm -hmm. uh, and economy and stuff like that. Uh, I have other scholarships, but I I don't want to just like read down my, my CV.
0: Yeah. 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 Of course not. Well, um, Let's, let's get one item uh, off your CV though. Uh, Why don't you tell everybody about uh, what you're doing in your PhD? Sure.
1: Uh, So what I'm doing in my PhD is uh, broadly speaking, environmental physics, more narrowly speaking, um, paleoclimate history, which means uh, looking at the historical climate of the earth and trying to figure out uh, what was happening, uh, what the mechanisms were that, uh, Uh, created change and and extremely Mm -hmm. narrowly what i work on is the interactions of high amplitude tides with the edges of ice sheets Mm -hmm. so um just very briefly if you have an ice sheet that's grounded in the ocean um it's going to have a floating shelf of ice and that floating shelf of ice will be able to um flex with the tides so if you have a large enough amplitude tide it can destabilize the ice sheet and then you start getting a faster uh, disgorgement of, uh, icebergs, which increases melt rates. Mm -hmm. So this, uh, this applies a lot historically. There are these things called Heinrich events, which are one of the main things I study. Hudson Strait spins Mm -hmm. out a bunch of icebergs. Uh, but in the present day where it's, uh, it could be applied usefully is on, um, these uh, various glaciers and ice streams in Greenland and Antarctica. For example, if a tsunami or a rogue wave were to hit these, it's possible they could destabilize, And then our melt rate would change for a few hundred years from about three millimeters a year, I think, to much more than that. So we'd have to kind of update our plans on how to deal with rising uh, sea levels.
0: Mm -hmm. And so uh, you're concerned with the history of the climate or a paleo climate right yeah um not so much concerned with predicting um the future of the climate but yeah yeah but you uh you do still have the aptitude um so i wanted to ask you about um the dramatic drop off in co2 emissions during the coronavirus lockdown i mean so uh, co2 emissions exponentially dropped for about i don't know two months and now they've picked up to i'm not sure if they've normalized but they've gotten back pretty close to normal levels does that short-term change have any impact on the climate that is measurable? I mean, or, or at least on um, ex- ex- specifically with uh, sea, uh, uh, ocean temperatures and, and, and the melting of the ice sheets.
1: Yeah. So um, one of the things to consider here is that uh, there's different residence times, right? So um, it takes longer for CO2 to filter out of, say, the ocean, uh, than it does out of the air in a room right because mm-hmm. there's different times like this. So I think that actually a lot of really good studies are going to come out of uh, the coronavirus time, mm-hmm. because we're going to be able to look at what are the short term effects of dramatically reducing CO2 emissions. Um, We'll be able to say because we have we have probes in the in in the upper atmosphere and we have probes in the ocean measuring co2 levels not me personally but they exist in the scientific community mm-hmm. uh, and so we'll be able to say okay so if we tank co2 for two months by x percent what percent and at what lag rate is that coming out of the oceans is that coming out of the uh of the uh, of the atmosphere or or reverse it might be going into mm-hmm. the ocean um and i think that that's going to be very interesting uh, I think that one thing that that's, that uh, ties into libertarianism is that this may be used as a proof of concept for uh, radical environmentalists, absolutely, uh, to say, "See, we can do this." And I mean, yes, we can, but it's always a question of of matching costs and benefits. Now, you know, I'm uh, climate change is a hundred percent real. I mean, I can't study it without knowing that. Uh, but I think one thing that needs to be worked into the conversation is the, is the, is the economic effects, because economic effects are really effects upon human beings. Mm -hmm. Right. We, I think we, we tend to like to pretend in this conversation that economic effects really only hit like Jeff Bezos and Elon Mm -hmm. Musk, but at -hmm. the end of the day, economic effects also hit, you know, Joe the truck driver or uh, Jill the hairdresser, right? Like Mm -hmm. these things, um, you know, who makes the money, who works for it, human beings,
0: what do they use that
1: money for? To buy food, to clothe their kids, right? So yeah. I think that those conversations need to happen, um, and I think that this is going to be a very interesting piece of that puzzle uh, te- uh, scientifically, moving forward.
0: Yeah, and um, economically speaking, this is um, this is what's uh, known as modern monetary theory, right? The idea that you can perpetually Print your own currency. The central bank can just continue printing currency, um, and and it doesn't matter how much the de- it doesn't matter how large the deficit gets because we'll always be able to print more of that same currency. And um, proponents of that theory are definitely going to look at the the dramatic expansion of um, money supplies across the world um, and see it see it as justified. But I mean, almost every um, every economist worth their salt knows that that's completely unsustainable, including Paul Krugman, who's um, certainly the most um, renowned left-wing economist.
1: Yeah, I'm going um, to say that, like, when, when, when even Paul Krugman is telling you to cool the printing presses, maybe yeah. it's time to, <laughs> to, like, give it a rest.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, so what is your solution for climate change, or what are some mitigating solutions? Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, so last time I was with you, we were talking about carbon capturing. And I know you're not yeah. an expert at this, but this is a very, very interesting solution. And essentially, what it does is um, you suck a carbon dioxide out of the air, usually at the source, like at the top yeah. of the smokestack. Why don't you yeah. explain? Well, there's,
1: I mean, there's, there's two main Divisions that you can think of. There's like point of emission capture, where you you put something over a smokestack so the emissions never get out into the car uh, into the atmosphere, or at a reduced rate, or um, the general atmosphere filtering, where you're trying to pull it out of pull what's already there out of it. Um, so I think point of a ca- uh, point of emission is is way more reasonable because it 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 very easily ties the producer to the uh, solution right mm-hmm. if i have a smokestack i have to deal with it mm-hmm. when you're dealing with pulling it out of international air you now start to deal with issues of um whose job is it whose responsibility is it? Uh you have a, like a, a um a collective action problem mm-hmm. uh, and i think the other kind of interesting angle i think you and i spoke about this briefly is that different countries have different preferred levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere mm-hmm. for example um Countries near the equator, uh, they're already pretty hot, right? I mean, there, I think it was a few years back where there was a heat wave uh, in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, which just made it in- intolerable to live. I could be getting this It might have been in India. Uh, but places in the north, like Canada and um, Russia, we're kind of okay if things get a little bit warmer because um, mm-hmm. it allows us to have... Uh, longer growing seasons and more arable land so you kind of get into this question of who who gets to decide what the optimal carbon dioxide level of the planet is Mm -hmm. um and i think that this is kind of a question that needs to be dealt with eventually um but in terms of solutions to to climate change i mean my my long-term preferred solution is just you know uh terraforming other planets but that's yeah that's very far away um, well, it's for... naive to
0: ask for you to give me a solution, um, because it doesn't seem to be the problem that we can immediately solve. I mean, if anything, we can um, mitigate the effects of climate change.
1: Yeah, and... yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a, an issue where, like, people point to climate change as, like, a principal example of, like, market failure. Mm-hmm. where The, the market is, is not able to respond quick enough to deal with... An envir- like the environmental issues now i'm not sure that's the case i think it might just be that the incentives are structured the wrong way um but it, it's hard i mean i, I think technology is going to get us out of this honestly i, I don't yeah. think politics is going to be the solution here i think someone somewhere is going to develop a reasonable green vehicle. Like, just recently, actually, I think they made a a technological breakthrough, at least theory-wise, in lithium-ion batteries Mm -hmm. to cheapen their construction and to cheapen the carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. So something like that, moving forward, I think is the way to do it, is just to make uh, electric cars sexy Uh, rather Mm -hmm. than trying to convince people that they have to take a hit to their quality of life, which is really Mm -hmm. a Malthusian argument in in a real way, right? Mm -hmm. That we need to all suffer a little bit more to prevent uh overpopulation for example mm-hmm. but in this case it's it's climate mm-hmm. c- crisis
0: mm-hmm. now what do you think about now this is a different environmental problem but it's either bjorn bjorn lomberg or boy on slot the the ocean cleanup project where they are have you heard about this it's essentially oh, yeah, yeah. These, these massive nets um, stretch over hundreds and hundreds of miles in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to try to clean up the Pacific garbage patch. Um, do you have any have anything interesting to comment about that?
1: Yeah, so one of the difficulties here is that uh, in kind of you know, a tip of the iceberg type um metaphor what's floating on top and is visible is really a small part of the problem the issue is the particulate plastics that are floating in the water mm-hmm. column and being eaten by right. fish
0: right
1: uh, so big nets are not going to solve that Th- they will definitely help and they will help mitigate the future problem because of course the plastic breaks up and disintegrates and that's what creates the particulate matter but mm-hmm. uh for that it's 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 a it's a very tough problem right how, how do you filter an ocean there's a lot of water. Um, mm-hmm. And also the issue with plastic is that you can't attract it magnetically. You mm-hmm. can't really do much to it. Um,
0: now, that being of- said, I do know a guy who is doing his master's in um, microbiology or something. And in, in his research lab, they're working on... Uh, plastic-eating
1: bacteria. Exactly. Yeah, I was just going to
0: say that the, yeah. the solution is something along those lines where you put
1: plastic-eating bacteria... Um, you just have to be careful with that because when you're releasing a bacteria into the world, you want to really make sure that it doesn't do mm-hmm. anything you're not expecting.
0: Just like anything. the COVID-19 vaccine, um, we do not want to unleash uh, horrible unintended consequence when yeah, you're I mean, radically example, changing systems. Yeah. The example
1: they give is that if you release plastic-eating bacteria into the ocean, how long does it take until suddenly all the gaskets are melting on planes because mm-hmm. of the rain that they're hitting because there's the bacteria there. So you have to, you have to be careful. I mean, the way I, it would make me most comfortable is to take water out, eat the plastic, and put it back in. Now, that would be a dilution process.
0: Right. Um,
1: uh, I don't know. Okay. Again, I don't totally, know anything about that. Totally I mean... outside my field of expertise. Uh, yeah. But I, it, it brings to mind, like, the, the nanobot, like, gray goo scenario where, you know, you, have, you release something and it just mm-hmm. – eats everything like all the plastic and we, we rely on plastic. We're all, you know, we're wearing plastic right now. My contacts are plastic. Right. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and same with petroleum, right? I mean, um, there's so many important products that we use in our everyday life that I'm not sure, um, if the general public know, have a, have a petroleum base, like, you know, your toothbrush, your phone case. I mean, it's all a dye. It's all a petroleum based product. Um, so, uh, I want to ask you quickly about nuclear energy. Um, I've, I mean, I've, I, I think you're a proponent. A hundred percent. Nuclear yeah. energy is the way to go. And I think that one of the reasons why uh, there there's, seems to be this impasse um, with people on the left and the right supporting nuclear energy. I mean, on the right, you have governments that are beholden to natural gas and big yeah. oil interests. And then on the left, Um, it doesn't, I mean, it, it isn't conducive with completely transforming the economy and it's also sacrificing your local environment to attempt to solve the global environment.
1: There's also another angle, which is nuclear disarmament, right? Mm -hmm. In that the left tends to not want governments to have nuclear capabilities. And so Mm -hmm. if you have nuclear energy, their idea is that therefore you have nukes. The two Mm -hmm. are, are associated. Um, now, in a certain sense, that's true. Like, the, the requisite skills required to run a reactor are somewhat transferable to the requisite skills to build a nuclear bomb, uh, but not exactly, right? Like, um, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, and then the, the thing about safety, which comes up a lot because of uh, Fukushima, I always get this wrong, is it Three Mile Island? Yeah, I can never remember the number. It's, it's some mile island and, okay. and Chernobyl, which are you know, yeah. the examples of these meltdowns. Um, now, what is a meltdown? Most people don't really know, and that's fine because it's kind of a niche thing. A meltdown is when uh, in a nuclear reaction, you have uh, three main components, uh, the fuel, the reaction uh, moderator. I, I think I might be getting that term wrong, but that's what it does. And the coolant, right? Mm. Uh, and so what a meltdown happens is when you run out of coolant, like, for example, in Chernobyl, all of the water... Uh, mm-hmm. went away, or in Fukushima, it got hit by a tsunami, and the water drained out something along those lines. Uh, all you have is a, is a is a, a hypercritical reaction which will continue because you have uh, a moderator to continue it and a fuel source um, so different types of um, nuclear reactors combine various types of these three uh, ingredients yeah. into one so my the, the, the safest one is something called a molten salt reactor now what it does is the in that case let me get this right um the moderator is the coolant so when if the coolant were to disappear there'd be no more moderator and you would mm-hmm. just have a uh a fuel which wouldn't go critical uh, again uh, this is not my area of expertise but this is roughly what what what's going on and yeah. so you set it up in such a way that if the coolant is gone, there's no more reactions. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and these are very safe. Um, they're still, I believe, in, uh, in mm-hmm. active development. But they could produce a, a large amount of... Um,
0: yeah, energy. exponentially more than wind and solar. And, and they're not um,
1: dependent on cloudy days or wind. No, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when Germany tried to completely shut off all its, uh, all its coal plants, I think in... Um, the early uh the early 2000s um they had they, they had to they had to start them back up again because turns out um when, uh, when the sun goes down uh solar panels aren't yielding any energy um the other thing uh about nuclear energy is like you said i mean it's getting safer mm-hmm. uh, and i think that um also like you said it is going to be technological solutions that solve climate, climate change, not political solutions, and I think that um, I mean eventually we should get to a point where water supplies aren't um, aren't compromised as much I mean and that seemed, I, I mean I'm, I'm not an expert at all, but that seems to be the biggest problem with nuclear energy is the danger to water, local water supplies right and, yeah. well, with the, with the exception of the um, obviously meltdown but um, but every Every nuclear reactor it compromises water supplies if i'm not if i'm not mistaken
1: uh, I mean because uh, with the with the coolant at least um, when you're using water as a coolant it's going to uh, get irradiated mm-hmm. um, so that's one one issue but uh, again, I think this is just a matter of you know cost benefit analysis i mean we've decided that having huge landfills mm-hmm. is a reasonable way to use land uh, so it seems to me that you could also make the argument that you know having nuclear power somewhere. Uh, now, of course, the issue is that you don't want it too far from civilization because you incur power losses in efficiency by having to move mm-hmm. the power a long way. Sure. But um I still think it's reasonable. I mean, uh if I if I ever ran for office, my my platform would be you know a tokamak in every city over a hundred thousand people. And you know, I'll just mm-hmm. n- we need we need nuclear proliferation for energy because it's it, well, it's it's not renewable, but it is clean, right? Mm-hmm. Because yes. we can, in effect, run out of uranium or other fissionable materials mm-hmm. eventually.
0: Um, but um, that's, not nearly, that's, not, that's not likely to happen anytime soon, right?
1: Yeah. I, I don't know what the global stocks of uh, – I mean, if I remember correctly, this is just vaguely. I remember seeing yeah, no around, worries. like when you run out of oil, when you run out of coal, because there's more coal than oil.
0: And it's like when you run out of uranium.
1: Like it's yeah. just yeah.
0: – yeah it gives us sense.
1: more wiggle room
0: okay why don't we move on past the environment because mm-hmm. like i said you're a very educated guy and you have um yeah your, your insights are really very valuable across the board um you said earlier you wanted to talk a little bit about um an, an analogy between the unrest we're seeing in north america right now and the collapse of um of, of, of the athenian of athens right yeah
1: yeah so i mean periclean athens is, is yeah, one similar. of one one of the golden ages of uh human history um the other one being the renaissance it's it's one of those weird times where things conspire just right to have uh art philosophy science all just hitting their stride at the right time mm-hmm. um i mean even today it, it, if you, if you quote someone from philosophy, there's a good chance they're either from Periclean Athens or around there mm-hmm. uh, in t- temporally or in, in the Renaissance or, I mean, in, in the last 100 years or so, but we, we tend to quote people who are near to us as well. So um, one of the things that I think is interesting, and for anyone who's interested in this, the, the second half of the second book by William Durant, which is uh, The Story of Civilization, it's an 11-volume series covering everything, more or less, uh, covers this very well, and that's principally where I'm drawing my my opinions on this from. But uh, the point he 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 raises is that as Athens is kind of collapsing now, Athens has had a long history of wars. There's been um, fights with Sparta for supremacy of the uh, of the Greek city-states. No Greek city-state has ever really been able to gather them all together and uh, create an empire. Athens made a good shot of it, um, which is. Um, the Athenian Empire. They try that a second time, but doesn't mm-hmm. really do well. And uh, what they see in their society is that um, the the middle class gets eroded uh, because of the way that the the economy is set up. And um, over time, the poor people... The, the way William Durant phrases it is that the middle class is a moderator between... Um, an obdurate aristocracy that will never change Mm -hmm. and a radical underclass that wants to, a utopian underclass. So kind of like, you know, between dystopia and utopia. Uh, and as the middle class erodes, which is what we've seen in North America over the last 20 years, um, there's no longer a moderator to kind of keep the peace. And so what you do is you have the rich that are trying to keep power and you have uh, a larger and larger, numerous, uh, poor, poorer class, lower class that seeks to take power. And so when the lower class does take power, what do they do? Well, they increase taxes. They uh, confiscate property and money from the rich. Yeah, expropriation. Uh, they, and they create social programs. Um, and now uh, Athens had had for a very long time actually had a kind of form of basic income. Uh, okay. The idea being that uh, everyone had a, had, a, had a right to attend the theater. So they got a, a little bit of money uh every year to attend the theater um now i think most people didn't use it to attend the theater they used it to manage their mm-hmm. lives uh but so they, they, so they had, this. had they
0: had the discretion that's interesting yeah
1: I, I believe they did uh again not my area of expertise you should get an actual Greek sure. historian on this to, to talk sure. to this sometime um but yeah so uh, what what occurs then is is the rich don't really want to lose their money, so what they do is they find cleverer and cleverer ways of hiding it. So what the poor do, who still have control of like the house, uh, or the equivalent of the house, you know, the 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 Senate, the um, oh, there's a word, the co- kind of Congress. Uh, in
0: um, I'm not sure. I'm yeah, not sure.
1: Uh, they they <laughs> they create a, a police force of like tax collectors to mm-hmm. go in and um find wealth that people are hiding Mm. uh another thing that the institute is like these policies where um they they take a um a geographical region and they're like you're the richest guy here so you're going to pay the tax for the entire region and then it's up to you to figure out how to equitably distribute that
0: okay so So kind of interesting yeah provincialism
1: yeah but in the but it's like uh then people would would deke them right you know uh, try and, and not not pay their taxes to yeah the the local guy it's also i was gonna say it also sows discord in the community Mm -hmm. um but yeah and so as this goes on and on um the rich get more and more antagonistic and stop seeing themselves as kind of like patrons of the of the civilization whereas historically uh people would be willing to donate money to like fund a fleet or to create a theater because they they saw themselves as like part of athens and as time goes on they're more like we're those people are not us right and so mm-hmm. i think that that's what we've in broad strokes i mean again if you had someone who knew this more in depth they could probably uh point to more specific examples uh but i think this is similar to what we've experienced here is that a a a, a a decay of the middle class and then a an incompatibilism between Mm -hmm. the 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 view of society that the rich have and a view of society that the poor have to the point where um in at least in the u.s i i would say that we're pretty close to the point where the overton windows of the left and the right almost don't overlap anymore i mean Mm -hmm. like what can they really agree on at this point?
0: Yeah. I mean, there used to be, I mean, there there used to be a couple institutions that um, the left and the right always held in high regard, Um, you know, like the military, like, I don't know, certain, um, certain public services. Um, But I think, I think it's a very good analogy. The middle class is like this, this buffer between um, the, between the very rich and the very poor. And now you have, an aristocracy that is um feels like they're shielding themselves from um an ingrateful um lower class and an underclass that's uh really feels like they're getting the short end of the stick and um you know i it's, it's I, I mean the reason i wanted to ask you to um explain this uh, in depth is because everybody makes the um analogy between uh the collapse of america and the collapse of the roman empire but i haven't heard the Periclean athens um, yeah i i hadn't heard of it too until i until i
1: read uh will Durant's book uh which was published in like the 40s i think right so it's mm. and he, he doesn't draw this comparison himself it's just when i was reading it it kind of struck me that there were parallels um and i mean the the counter argument you could make is that we haven't really got to the point yet where the poor are actually taking seats in congress but i'd argue that uh, that someone like Alexandra ocasio cortez is an mm-hmm. example of someone who was working as like a bartender mm-hmm. i believe that's correct and has now risen to be in the house i mean so it's, it's just starting um but i think we might see more of those kind of popular uh popular left-wing people raising up into positions of power mm-hmm. uh, now and what, you, what, i was gonna and say you... what remains to be seen is whether or not cortez sticks with that or if as time goes on she becomes a member of the rich
0: yeah absolutely um i mean uh this comedian i really like tim Dillon, said uh that you know she'll be on the board of jp morgan chase and their diversity department any anytime now right and i mean i i don't know how principled she is i mean we'll see and you also wonder if um working class people uh from the right will um will end up becoming members members of government members of high society um i mean i think uh I can't think of I can't think of anybody who's sitting in government now who came from um such modest means as Cortez. I mean, um uh well there was a there there there's a, a newly elected congressman, um, I think it's Madison Cawthorn. He's twenty four years old. Um, uh he's a Republican, he won in North Carolina. Um so he's a pretty modest guy. But um
1: Yeah, I mean I mean it's I but, think... I was just going to say that one of the issues yeah, here with like the left and right divide um, is that in a lot of other countries it's really a three-party system or three-party poll between mm-hmm. uh, liberal, labor, and conservative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in the U.S., the the labor has always kind of played this game of flopping between one and the other, mm-hmm. right? Which is why, you know, um, w- that's a, a large reason why Trump won is that he was able to court like the right-wing labor movement in the Great Lakes region. Mm-hmm. right? And so um, it, it's very interesting. This is, I think it's, it's kind of the, uh, a piece of the puzzle that doesn't get talked a lot about is that, you know, there, there is a group of people that like, like, right-wing people who are pro-union, right? Like, they're conservative at home, but they're real mm-hmm. strong members of their union. An example of that in Canada is, like, the NDP of, like, way, way back. They mm-hmm. were union people. And over time, the unions have shifted more and more progressive, uh, which is kind of interesting because I would imagine that the, there's a disconnect between the leadership and the membership
0: on mm-hmm. that. With the exception of police unions. Um.
1: Yeah, with the, but, yeah, police unions are a whole nother beast themselves, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, those those, deserve an almost completely separate analysis, I'd say. Yeah,
0: I agree. I agree. I mean, I think think one of the big um, problems that uh, the left is having across the board in the Western world right now is they have um, all these infighting factions that aren't compatible with one another. I mean, you have union movements, you have postmodern uh, college graduates you have new immigrants who end up being very socially conservative sometimes and so um, the internal dynamics of that alliance um, isn't sustainable once they get into government.
1: For sure and I mean to tie back into the Roman theme one of my, my favorite Roman uh, writers of all time is Juvenal uh and Mm -hmm. he's one of a very good satirist and there's um i remember when i first read him i was just struck by how much what he was saying could almost have come out of trump's mouth if you modulated the language a little bit Mm -hmm. because he's he's complaining about the same things right it's i think he's he's fall of rome so i think it's fifth or sixth century something like that Uh, again uh i don't remember the exact but um he basically says what are the problems with rome well um we have all these immigrants and historically they would like become roman right they mm. you, they came from gaul but now they're roman now they're Gauls inside of rome mm. right so that's one thing he's criticizing the next thing he's criticizing is the loose sexual morals of uh, their women he's like what is this they, they, these women they're just they're sleeping around they're doing all this stuff they're not at home raising good roman kids and the third thing he says which i think is interesting is the erosion of the guest right and uh, now guest right is just the idea that when you go to someone's house they take care of you and they don't kill you right like you you, you are a protected member when you're mm-hmm. at someone's house and so he says you know it used to be you go over to your buddy's house and even if you can't offer him any business or uh, or or money he gives you a, a good piece of bread and a, a nice chair with arm and you're sitting at the table and now you go and you're lucky if you get a crust of bread a crust of moldy bread and like uh, a stool Mm -hmm. So he's, he's actually criticizing something that the right doesn't usually criticize, which is like the breakdown of, well, I guess they do in some way, like the breakdown of societal cohesion and the idea of Mm community. And so I think that this is interesting because those are a lot of the same complaints that you see today in the US is that, Mm -hmm. you know, people don't take care of each other. Um, Mm -hmm. The sexual moral one—it's more on the right, but like the right does complain about that—and then immigration, definitely, mm-hmm. I can see people complain about that. Now, I'm not saying I agree with juvenile. I just think that it's an interesting parallel mm-hmm. to to draw that, like empires as they fall have similarities. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, it's uncanny, really, the resemblance between what happened to ancient Rome, what's happening to the United States. It just became, you know, overexpanded, too many um too many too many institutions that had lost trust um all right anything else you want to uh say to tie this up i think we should uh call it time christian usually does these at 30 minutes and i think uh like we've gone yeah we've gone at least like 40 so oh uh, yeah i
1: guess we did start a little early okay yeah
0: yeah all right man i really appreciate it uh yeah, hope you sure. be on again soon i'll see you soon peace
1: Hey. Right, have a good one